What is going on, everybody? This is Byron Evans. I'm here today with Stephen Dinan. He's a journalist for the Washington Times. And you can also find him on Fox News from time to time, given everything that's going on on Capitol Hill and politics in general. Steve, what's going on, my man? Nothing. It's a slow Friday. <laughs> Very good. Well, first, I just want to thank you for sitting down and, and doing this, uh, answering a few questions on a Friday, no less. Um, and I wanted to get started with your article. I, I believe you co-wrote with S.A. Miller yesterday. Um, every every presidential cycle, you know, we always get the uh, the endorsements from different politicians. And you guys brought up how this year a lot of politicians have come out unendorsing people. Like you got the governor of Iowa saying that, you know, Iowans shouldn't vote for Senator Cruz. A lot of people coming out against Trump. What is it about this year that you think has made politicians so bold to come out and say who you shouldn't vote for, breaking the old Reagan rule, you know, do no harm to another Republican? Yeah, the old Reagan 11th commandment, uh, speak no ill of, uh, thou shalt not speak ill of uh, fellow Republicans was Reagan. No, it's, it's a really good question. And it's, um, so we call them uh, anti-endorsements. And okay. there are, uh, uh, it's not completely unheard of. There have been anti-endorsements in the past. What's crazy is this year, as you pointed out, there are a lot more than usual. And they're really big figures who are coming out. And uh, we had this crazy situation where there's a, uh, a senator, uh, Senator Ben Sass, who's actually, uh, he's gone out and campaigned with three other uh, um, uh, people in Iowa. He's from Nebraska, so it was, he was right across the, uh, the line. But he campaigned with three other people in Iowa. Normally, you pick somebody you endorse them, you go campaign with them. He campaigned with three people, said he wasn't endorsing any of them. His main goal was to prevent uh, Donald Trump from getting the nomination. So it's, it's the ultimate anti-endorsement. It's, it's literally an anybody but Trump sort of uh, campaign he's running. So, uh, you know, what's behind it this year? A couple of different things. I, the most important thing is um, – well, just just the the giant size of the Republican field and who the candidates are. The, uh, you know, we've uh, you've heard a lot about how this is an anti-establishment year. Voters are really angry at Washington and at the political establishment. Well, that's a good indication of it. You know, the, just the the fact that there are so many people out there who are uh, who are against somebody rather than uh, here's who I'm for. You know, they're they're telling voters. You can vote for this guy. You can vote for this guy, but do not vote for that guy. That's crazy that, stuff. And that's it, what's been funny. Yeah, and it really is. Uh, it captures that anti-establishment mentality there. The other thing, though, is that Republicans really are. They're, they're sort of fighting for. Um, uh, this is going on a little bit in the Democratic side, but on the Republican side, they're really uh, the establishment. I guess, for lack of a better word, the establishment really is troubled by some of the candidates in the uh, in the field. You know, they're, they're not sure. They're, there's a lot of money that changes hands here in Washington by a lot of people who have a lot of connections and, you know, and, and have built up a pretty comfortable sort of uh, uh, sort of existence, uh, whether their side actually wins issues or not, they still get paid. And there are a lot of folks there who are afraid that they may not, that whole balance might be upset if somebody like a Ted Cruz or a Donald Trump is the Republican nominee and more than that goes on to win. Having said that, there are also some of what you're seeing there is people who simply don't believe that if Ted Cruz or Donald Trump is their nominee, that the Republicans will be able to beat whoever the Democratic nominee is. So some of this is pragmatism, uh, some of it's politics, and some of it's really just sort of folks looking at their personal situation and saying, <laughs> hey, where do I stand to gain and where do I lose? Correct. Um, you all, in, in that answer, you mentioned um, the anger 
in in voters or whatnot. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, every presidential election, you you usually hear, as far as back as I can remember, you hear about how, especially from people that are fed up with both parties, you know, is there is it time for a third party? Maybe we need a third party. And usually the answer is no. But if you look back at 2010 with the Tea Party and how they were able to get some of their candidates elected, and then if you talk to a lot of Trump voters, a lot of times they'll tell you, hey, I don't trust the Republicans. I can't stand the Democrats. He's saying everything that we want to hear. So no matter what happens with Trump, whether he wins or loses, is this the year that we are as close as we've ever been to a third party, or do you still see that as something unlikely or even impossible? So this gets a little complicated, and we'll do a little bit of history here. But one of the things is uh, there's actually a difference between a third party and an independent. Um, and, and it's probably good for your listeners to, I guess, bear this distinction in mind. You know, when Ross Perot first ran in 1992, mm-hmm. he was running as an independent. He later went on to uh, to lead what, you know, the Reform Party. And it sort of essentially became something like it existed. But he basically created this party out of his movement and created a third party there. And it's, you know, it, it actually had candidates in the next two presidential elections. I think Pat Buchanan may have been the Reform Party candidate in 2000, having previously been a Republican uh, candidate, he was then the the Reform Party nominee in 2000. So uh, that is uh, that was an independent who formed a third party. Uh, you'll hear the experts on this say that in order for a an either an independent or a third party bid, well, no third party is likely to be successful just because the third parties that exist are the the Reform Party, the Constitution Party, the Libertarian Party is probably the the the, the Green Party. Yeah. Absolutely, there you go. The Green Party is still around. You know, Ralph Nader, I believe, has run as the Green Party nominee in the past, but he also might have run as an independent. The problem is this. The two political parties generally do a good job of uh, of sort of staking out positions. I mean, this is the role of political parties. They are supposed to be centering factions that, you know, they look at where voters are and then they go out and find those voters. They make their positions match those voters. And that's how that's how <laughs> politics works. What, what's broken down here is, is that uh, the parties right now, a lot of the people in those parties don't feel that the parties are actually representing them uh, in either party. Partly it's what we talked about a minute to go that they feel like Washington is, you know, Washington itself is a political party of a bunch of people who are getting rich off of Washington and that, you know, the actual uh, the Democratic and Republican parties out in the field, the voters who belong to those parties think that, well, you know, those parties no longer, at least the Washington part of those parties no longer represent them. So the parties are very powerful and their job is to go get votes. Their job is to go find out where the voters are and make themselves represent those voters. And that's how you win elections. In order to beat these very powerful political parties, you have to have somebody who is uh, wealthy enough to make a run on their own, which is why uh, you've seen the talk about a third party or an independent campaign this time around being led by somebody like Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire former mayor, I think three-term mayor of New York City, who has a a huge name identification already in political circles, certainly, uh, and obviously has some political uh, executive experience from those times as mayor and has enough money to be able to to make a, uh, a run on his own. We've seen in the past he'd uh, 
um, you know, there was reporting back in, I think maybe it was, uh, it was either 2008 or 2012 that he'd taken a look at it and had gone ahead and calculated, you know, the, the amount of money that he'd need to put into a race. So he, this is a guy who's, who's done these sort of calculations before. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reporting right now that he's making a very, uh, a very strong look at trying to figure out whether this is the year. I think you're right in saying we're closer than we have been in a long time to that being an option. Uh, I don't know that we will actually see it this year. It's not an easy thing to do as Ross Perot, another really rich guy, found out back in, uh, in 92 and 96. I think you'll know whether it were ripe for that based on what happens with the uh, with the two parties. You know, if 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 the nominees from the two parties are Hillary Clinton and and Jeb Bush, you may have uh, those are fairly sort of center folks, and you know, voters might feel uh, in those two parties might feel ah, you know, they're okay. If you have two folks that are from the wings of the party, if you had say Ted Cruz on one end and uh, Bernie Sanders from the Democratic side as the nominee on the other side, it leaves a lot of room in the middle for somebody like a Bloomberg to come in and run as a centrist uh, third party or independent candidate. So whether we get one will depend on who who the nominees are from both parties and how much room there is in the middle. Uh, You'd mentioned the Green Party and I, you know, there are then there's, I've mentioned the Constitution Party and whatnot. Those are folks, the Constitution Party runs from the right, usually to the right of the Republicans and the Green Party usually is to the left of the Democrats. There's not a lot of space on those two wings uh, for those, which is why those parties generally don't have a lot of electoral success. The question is always how much space there is in between the two major parties in that center. And if the nominees, as I said, if the nominees are on the extremes of both of those parties, there is space in the center for somebody to run. And that's a that's a great distinction that you made between party and independent, because, um, you know, in, in presidential races, I think an independent is more viable as far as a party. Anybody that knows Capitol Hill, the two parties have a stranglehold up here. So I don't I, I can't even feasibly see how uh, another party could come up here and uh, make room to get on committees and stuff because you even if you are an independent you have to caucus with one of the parties up here most recently uh former senator joe lieberman uh senator king and senator sanders they're all officially independents but they caucus with either the, the democrats or the republicans i wanted to ask you about um governor casey governor casey excuse me and for those that don't know he uh is a former congressman he was a part of the Bush cabinet. He even stepped away from politics and hosted a show on Fox News for a while. And now he's the current governor of arguably one of the most important states in presidential elections. Yet he he's polling like third in New Hampshire, I believe. But he just doesn't seem to like, you know, I know Trump has been number one the majority of the time, but he hasn't even broken to like, where Cruz is, where he's like that number two guy, how Rubio was for a second. Why do you think Kasich hasn't, because he seems like a great general election candidate. Why do you think he's not found any traction so far? So everything you just said about laying out the the, the parameters of the race is is exactly right. And and it's interesting. Look, um, 
the Republican field this time has, and back when before we had five or six guys drop out, had a number of uh, of governors, very prominent, very uh, very successful governors. The Republican Party loves loves <laughs> usually loves to pick governors as its presidential nominees. You, you go all the way back to uh, uh, you know to Nixon. I think you, you had. All of the successful Republican nominees, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, Nixon, these, these guys were all governors. Uh, and Mitt Romney, their, 90, uh, their, their most recent 2012 nominee was a governor. They really do like to pick governors as their nominees, and their governors tend to be more successful. So you would have thought that this, first of all, the crop of governors this time from Jeb Bush, the former two-term uh, governor mm-hmm. of Florida who has this name recognition, uh, to uh, you had Governor Scott Walker, who was in the race at one point from Wisconsin, very very, very popular conservative at one time. Yeah, Governor Bobby Jindal of uh, Louisiana, former Governor Rick Perry of Texas. Uh, you have Governor, you still have Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey. And as you mentioned, well, you have former uh, Governor Mike Huckabee of Arkansas. And then as you mentioned, you have Governor Kasich in uh uh, in Ohio, who's now in his second term, there it's a very important political state for the uh, for the general election. Uh, considered, you know, maybe the epitome of a swing state, and so no, it's sort of everything. If you step back and you say, draw up the perfect Republican <laughs> candidate for me, it would look a lot like John Kasich. Except for then you get to sort of where the Republican electorate is at this point. And, you know, John Kasich is probably everything now that Donald Trump is not and vice versa. You know, Donald Trump is uh, is brash and says uh, exactly what's on his mind and is uh, – um, uh, he talks about cutting deals and how he'd be uh, – you know, he literally wrote the book The Art of the Deal and, and, and talks about that. But – on the campaign trail, that's not his persona. Uh, he, his persona is he's a fighter. And John Kasich, his persona is not fighter. His his persona, though, when he was back here in Congress back in the in the 1990s as chairman of the House Budget Committee, he had a very different reputation. But you know, we're we're 20 years past that, and his reputation now is as a uh, uh, a, a lower key uh, a pragmatist, yeah. a guy who's who's willing to uh, to strike deals where deals need to be struck and uh, or where he feels deals need to be struck. Maybe the most important reason why he's stumbling, first of all, there are a lot of other governors. There are a lot of people competing for that ideal establishment candidate that, you know, all, uh, uh, Christie and Bush and Kasich are all competing for this establishment uh, mantle there. Um, and, and then uh, uh, Kasich in particular has, it's not fair to say that he's run away from, but he has downplayed the social issues that that get Republican primary voters very excited. There's a reason why John Kasich is not really competing in uh, in Iowa is because Iowa voters are heavily evangelical religious conservatives and they want their candidates to be focused on things like pro-life issues and uh, they, they want them to still be talking about gay marriage even though the Supreme Court issued its ruling last year which seemed to settle that legally. Uh, they still want to hear what, can, what candidates can and will do to resist that or try and 
change that. Uh, they at least want to see people talking about those issues. And Kasich has been very clear. He said, hey, you know, that's not uh, where I am. Yes, he says that he that he shares those views uh, of the religious conservatives, but that's not his emphasis in running. And that just doesn't play very well with those folks. It does generally play better in New Hampshire, which has a reputation as more socially moderate and fiscal conservatives. Uh, um, and that's, as you said earlier, that's why he's actually done very well in the last several polls up there. He's been in third place and a, and a solid third place. Uh, you know, he getting near to Cruz levels, uh, who Cruz currently in second place. Actually, both of them have left over Marco Rubio, who used to have a, a hold on second place there. And so Kasich is making a move. He has some momentum there. And you know who knows what things will look like uh, when we head into New Hampshire and who will still be left if some of the establishment candidates have dropped out or if for some reason New Hampshire voters uh, decide to start thinking strategically and want to unify around a single anti-Trump or anti-Cruz case it could be the person they turn to or they could also turn to somebody else or they could stay fra uh, fragmented and not unify around somebody. So this is when you have a field this large with Republicans – um, it's tough to make any predictions about what those voters will do with the lower tier of the field. But, it, you know, the longer the field remains this big, the less likelihood they unify around somebody else, the more it means that a Trump or a Cruz is going to uh, is going to do well. Right. Today, um, I believe it was 22 of uh, Secretary Clinton's emails that were deemed, I guess, top secret. So they're not going to release them to the casual voter. Because it's, it's not it's not like a sex story where it grabs everybody's attention to the casual voter. I don't I'm not sure that they could tell you exactly what's going on with that. So for the for the everyday voter, what is what did Secretary Clinton do or is at least is accused of doing that is so wrong that should make people say, hey, I, I don't know if I should vote for this person. So. This could be the sleeper story of the election. You currently have you have uh, basically a betting game going on or, or a guessing game among Republicans in particular about when she will be indicted for this behavior. And, you know, whether that happens or not, you know, who knows? And that, that, that those are decisions made by other people. I'm not saying she will or won't be indicted. Uh, but the guessing game, the fact that there's literally this guessing game going on tells you how much jeopardy there is for her here. So stepping back. Uh, she was Secretary of State during President Obama's first term, and uh, she declined to use the official State Department uh, web server or email server uh, kept here, and uh, you know, under all the security that that, uh, that that goes along with that, and instead set up a server at her house in New York, kept it uh, the actual physical server at her house in New York, and ran an email account uh, for herself and her one of her top aides also. Uh, on that server, you know, that server is not does not have the sort of uh, protections that a government server has for cybersecurity protections. She, now, of course, it probably did have pretty good physical security because being the home of a former president and a former first lady, mm -hmm. uh, it did have secret service protection. So physically, the server was probably safe. But, you know, once things get out into cyberspace, we've actually seen some some high level government officials, former government officials, uh, I think a former defense secretary actually right. say that that he believes that there's, you know, there's probably no question that America's enemies got access to her, to the emails she was sending because of that. So so that's all speculation. We don't know that that's true, that uh, that 
enemy forces were reading Mrs. Clinton's emails at the time she was Secretary of State. But we do know that there's a possibility that went on because of the way that she ran, uh, that she declined to use the official server and used her own. She's explained this as a matter of convenience and, you know, has tried to deflect questions saying uh, that she every message she sent on there was not marked uh, none of the information was marked classified at the time she sent it and uh that she you know didn't really think a lot about this technology at the time and didn't mean to do anything nefarious with, by having this arrangement the problem is that that doesn't ring very true to a lot of voters, including a lot of Democratic voters, what we're hearing uh, from people on the ground in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, who there's a Democratic voters who are, first of all, worried that she might, in fact, be indicted. And even if she's not, just worried that she'll have to face these continuing questions over her handling of what is now classified information. And this goes to what you said a minute ago. Uh, so earlier today, the State Department announced that of the um, of the messages, there are already about – there a total of 30,000 emails or so, 30 to 32,000 emails that she finally, two years after leaving office, finally returned to the State Department. Now, they should have always been in the State Department's property uh, because they are government records. She never, uh, since she was keeping them on her own server, she did not, the State Department never had access to them until the con uh, congressional probe into the 2012 Benghazi terrorist attacks. They, they looked at her emails and said, well, Shouldn't there be a lot more Clinton emails here on this? We aren't seeing any and forced the State Department to go back. And uh, they looked and they said, oh, wait, well, she had a strange arrangement here. And then all of this broke into the open. So she was forced to turn these emails over, which is bad step number one for her. Number two is that it came two years after she left office. Number three is that she went through with her lawyers and decided which emails she was going to turn over and which emails she deemed were purely private, not government. And she says she has deleted all of those and didn't turn them over. Now, there's some questions about that, uh, about whether that's the appropriate way this should happen. And, and those are all being fought out. I will say uh, to her, um, sort of in her defense, the National Archives, which went ahead and reviewed the 32,000 messages that she did return to the government, decided that some more than a thousand of them actually she oversent, that the thousand of them actually were private, even though she said uh, they may be public, they were private, and they said they don't need to be released. So she... Um, in her review, there's at least some indication that she was uh, more thorough than she even needed to be in turning back the messages, but as we said, two years uh, later than she should have. Um, real quickly, just as a reporter, this all matters because for anybody who was sending an open records request for her records during those four years she was in office and the two years afterwards before she turned her messages over, never was able to get access to this information, which by law they should have had access to. So that's why this, you know, from a public uh, rela uh, public uh, information standpoint, this matters because the State Department was saying, no, nope, we have no records of, of, of any of that ever happening. And they... The answer is there were records of it, and she withheld those records. So that's that feeds into all of the questions about the Clintons and secrecy and their own deals and paranoia that they develop. You know that, that that they sort of left the public with after their eight years in the White House. So that's the political problem there. The criminal issue is more complex, and that is on the you know whether she did have classified information that was in those emails she was sending from an unclassified, un non secure uh, server and non secure email account. As of today, 22 of these messages have been deemed to have uh, top secret information, which is so secret, they aren't going to even be able to release any of those emails. They're already of the 
30,000 emails uh, that she did turn, return to the government, they've already released about 23,000 of those enrolling productions over the last six months. The final production was actually due today and it won't come. The government is blaming the snowstorm and a bunch of other things for saying that they need a month of delay. But regardless, so of the 23,000 or so emails we've seen at this point, about 1,100 of them or so actually do contain classified information, either uh, uh, marked as uh, com- uh, cl- uh, marked as confidential information or as secret. So not top secret, but the two lower levels of secrecy. So essentially, uh, between five and 6% of all the messages she sent from her email uh, have information that the government now deems to be too secret to release. That's bad. The question is whether it should have been deemed that at the time she released it, or whether it's just that events have uh, later gone on to make it classified. This latest, the fact that there's top secret information in there, that makes it sound like it probably, we don't know this for sure, this is speculation, but it's speculation that a lot of folks are making, that it probably means that 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 information should have been classified at the time she sent it, not just that it was, that events later made it so uh, important that it needed to be classified, but that it was bad enough that she should have known at the time that it shouldn't have been sent on a non-secure server. So that's sort of the latest in where we are. We're going to see how this plays out. The Obama, the President Obama, first of all, if you're President Obama, you have to be sitting there pulling your hair out that she left you with, uh, with this sort of headache. You know, it's you're the one who has to clean up after her mess. This is the person who you figured would take over for you. You want her there to defend your legacy as essentially the third term of Obama, and she's threatened all that by the way that she's handled this email situation. So, as I said, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, the Obama administration is going to have to make a decision at some point. The FBI is investigating uh, something surrounding the emails. What exactly? they're investigating is a little vague right now, but they're investigating. And, you know, if they end up uh, making a decision to um, pursue this case in a criminal way, that's uh, that's devastating for her right. campaign. And she's got to be uh, – they say they're not worried about that. They say they're very comfortable and they say that the, – basically they say that this is a political witch hunt and we'll, uh, we'll see where we go from there. I have said in, in 2008 uh, that – President Obama, well, then Senator Obama, he was a phenomenon that nobody would have been able to beat him in that 2008 election. And part of that, at least in my opinion, was the Republicans, they focused so much on Hillary that by the time Obama was going to be the nominee, he was already he already had a movement behind him that probably couldn't be stopped. And you fast forward to today. And you look at last night's Republican debate, I think Bernie Sanders' name came up once by Senator Rubio. Do you feel like Republicans could possibly be making the same mistake again by focusing all their energy on Hillary? And before you know it, you look up and Sanders is the nominee and the same thing happened again? Or is he a much easier target than uh, than Senator Obama? It's a really, really good question. And um uh, I think the answer probably is what you said at the very end there. He is an easier target than President Obama for a, a number of different reasons. First of all, you know, President Obama was was a, a, 
a historic candidacy and uh, is obviously an historic president for uh, for a number of reasons. But obviously, being the first black president makes uh, made his candidacy and his election. Uh, well, it, it will be unmatched in American history. He will be that he is the first. And that's, uh, you know, the country was rightly proud of uh, of that accomplishment. Um, Sanders does not have that. Uh, the other thing that Obama remember, the President Obama that voters, uh, I guess not just voters, all Americans see now is different than the candidate Obama that was running in 2008. You know, if um, if voters had known in 2008 that this that, that President Obama would go it alone on some of these issues like immigration and uh, issue executive actions, which you know people are not necessarily that 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 excited about. They don't like they they may not dis disagree with the policy, but aren't so sure they wanted to see the president go alone and ignore Congress and not work with Congress on all these things, that would be a different candidate than than what Obama was in 2000. Remember, in 2008, this was still a president, a candidate Obama who was uh, sort of cruising on his 2004 speech at the Democratic Convention, this unifying speech where he envisioned not a red America and a blue. I don't actually remember. I don't think he used the word purple America, but it came to be known as the purple America speech because he talked about, hey, we need to get past these divisions of red and blue states. But as a president, he's been uh, decidedly he's been very uh, um, well, he's helped uh, uh and mesh those red and blue states. He's, he's, it's certainly not all his fault. Uh, he and Republicans together have done this, but it's the result of his presidency and the way the Republicans have reacted to it has been uh, a firmer division of red and blue, not a, uh, not, not a mixing of red and blue into this purple America that he saw back in 2004. So uh, candidate Obama in 2008 is different than President Obama here in 2016. And both of those are different than candidate Sanders. Um, President Obama was a very gifted candidate and, a, and an amazing speechmaker and a gifted, uh, a gifted candidate. Bernie Sanders is, um, uh, he's a, he's not necessarily, it's not that he's a bad candidate, but he's not a, he's not a political guy. Obama was, is and was a political guy. Sanders is an ideal, ideological guy. He's, um, you know, I, I sort of like to think of him as, uh, uh, as a walking ideology, you know, he's, he, he is, uh, this, this leftist politician who believes very firmly in his positions of, you know, in, in, in tackling the banks and the, and big businesses and in a much broader role for the government in providing a safety net and, you know, maybe more than a safety net, uh, actual, uh, you know, propping up, uh, uh, Americans and taxing in order to do that. He's, you know, explicit in saying, Hey, the government can spend this money better than you taxpayers can. I think the taxpayers will will want to give the government more money so that we can do more stuff for them with it. And you know that he may be right about that gamble, but it's a it's a philosophy that that's uh, not been generally the American philosophy for uh, well for two hundred and and forty some odd uh, years. So it's. He's asking voters to go much further than they have been willing to go in the past. And um, I think that may be the difference between this and candidate Obama. Having said all of that, there's no question that he's got a lot of energy behind him. And that energy, the energy that was behind Obama in 2008 
is the same energy that's behind Sanders. I don't know that it tra- – certainly on, on the Democratic uh, uh, side in a Democratic primary. I don't know that that translates into a general election the way that Obama's energy did. Uh, but the uh, the fact that Republicans – that Sanders could capture this nomination is absolutely a possibility where we wouldn't have imagined that you know six months ago. You know, I guess the other thing I'd say is that we're looking at the numbers. Hillary Clinton's numbers are dropping faster now than they were in 2008 when Obama ended up after a protracted uh, primary that lasted all the way through, uh, I think, California in June, right? Uh, After a protracted primary, Obama finally claimed it. Uh, Clinton, uh, you know, Clinton's numbers are dropping faster than they were uh, then. One other uh, caveat to all that, and this is probably way too in the weeds, but uh, Mrs. Clinton has a huge advantage, which is in the Democratic primary, there's something called uh, superdelegates for the nomination and the convention. These are these are folks who they're usually, uh, you know, labor uh, union officials and uh, party officials and uh, uh, basically long, uh, long time committed Democrats who the party has granted the status to. And they have. Uh, a lot of sway over who the nominee is. They actually have votes, you know, that they get to cast on the uh, uh, at the nomination nominating convention. Republicans don't have that. Republicans, it's uh, you know, it's it's the votes that are out there. So it's it's, it, it's sort of interesting. The Democratic Party actually chooses their nominee through a much less democratic uh, process, thanks to the superdelegates than the Republican Party, which where it really is if you get the uh, the, the delegates. With a you know some extra threshold rules and whatnot, if you get the delegates, you're the nominee in uh, in the Democratic Party. Those superdelegates hold a huge amount of sway. And you may remember back in 2008, that was the big question: is it was only when Obama began to be able to peel some of those superdelegates who switched their allegiance from Clinton to Obama that it became clear that hey, he really could win this thing. Sanders has you know we'll have to wait and see once he be, if he ever begins flipping superdelegates. That's your 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 cue that something's changed it will be pretty interesting if i'm definitely not saying i hope she does or doesn't but it it certainly would be interesting if she does not get the nomination again because uh in the book game change i read she had like a hit list of sorts uh when she didn't get it in 08 so uh it's it's going to be very interesting i wanted to uh change gears for a second off of politics per se um the water crisis in, in Flint, Michigan, it's uh, more than 40% live below the poverty line there. It's predominantly minority and African-American. I, uh, I'm, I wrote a post yesterday that really laid out the details and nuances of everything that's going on. I know it's been sold like you got your Michael Moore's making the rounds, pretty much just saying, hey, this is a Republican governor. He ignored black people. He ignored poor people. That's it. He needs to be locked up. It's actually more detailed than that. But I just wanted to get your quick opinion on, is it a case of government just ignoring uh, an electorate that didn't vote for him anyway? Is it incompetence or is it a combination of both? Uh, so it's safe to say it was a failure at all levels of government, though uh, much of the blame Uh, has and probably rightly so falls on the governor who is the chief executive of that state and is is in the end responsible for this sort of this situation um the only major casualty we've seen you know somebody the uh administrator the 
Environmental Protection Administration administrator for that region has uh, has stepped down. I believe that was earlier this week, but has stepped down. So there, you know, there a a head has rolled at the federal level. Uh, there have been calls for Governor Snyder to uh, to give up his post, the, the Michigan governor, to step down as well. But he's said, no, look, I got to fix this. It's not about stepping down. It's about getting this right. Yeah. And we'll see whether that, uh, you know, <laughs> whether he's able to, uh, first of all, to get it right, to fix things. And second of all, whether that's enough to uh, to keep his uh, keep him in his job right now. But, it, you know, your question's a very good one. And um, there's. There's no question there were uh, incompetence and negligence uh, at uh, at all levels, and in particular at the at the state level. Um, whether it was a you know a political decision to ignore a constituency that they didn't care about, I'm always reluctant to uh, to read that sort of motive into uh, into people. I, I generally. I try and assume that office holders really do, you know, take their office seriously. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I guess I'd just say let's let's hope that's not the case. You, you hope they're human. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, that's exactly right. You hope they you hope they're human. You hope they 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 uh, they care about uh, the people that that elected them, and they care about you know as 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 these guys like to say, I'm not the president of uh, of the 52 percent of uh, of the country, the Democrats who who voted for me. I'm the president of everybody, including those who voted for the other guy and including those who didn't vote at all. And that same thing is true for the governor. He's the governor uh, for those who voted for him. He's the governor for those who voted against him. And he's the governor for those who didn't vote at all. And, uh, you know, let's hope he takes that charge seriously. Last question. Uh, get you out of here. Um, right now, Donald Trump is leaving, leading the Republican side. Uh, we talked about Bernie Sanders earlier. I just wanted to get your take because you, you know how this place works. Trump has bold ideas. He's mentioned banning all Muslims, and he's mentioned doing a lot of things that some people say, "Hey, you can't just do that by yourself." Bernie Sanders wants uh, free college and a, a lot of things that people say would never get passed. Of those two, if they were, if either one of them were to win the presidency, who would have the hardest time getting some of their policies through Congress? You think? It's a, um, it's a tough question, partly because we don't actually know what Trump's policies are. <laughs> you know, it's uh, we we know we know a couple of them. He right. was he was very explicit on uh, an immigration plan. Now, this was before the the Muslim comments, but he has a, a very explicit immigration plan detailed. And for what is worth, the immigration plan actually shows a uh, an important and and a fundamental understanding of the immigration system and problems with it. Now, you may not agree with his solution that the answer is to uh, to speed up deportations of those who are here illegally, but he does understand the uh, the challenges of the current situation and why it's failing. Some people say that the answer to that is to just legalize them and offer them a path to citizenship uh, over a long period of time. Others say that uh, the answer is just to deport them all. You know, Trump is probably closer to that second solution, but at least he understands the the problem and has a plan to uh, the, uh, to to go towards that, which is more than at this point more than just about every other Republican candidate because they're also scared of this issue. They're running away from it. So, uh, but having said that, other than immigration, for example, the Muslim. Uh, uh, it's not worth calling it a plan because it's not a plan. The Muslim comments he made were he called for a a temporary halt to admitting Muslim visitors and immigrants, and it's unclear exactly what that means, right? So it's it's tough to say what uh, what 
it's tough to say, first of all, what Trump would actually put forward as a plan. And it's tough to say how difficult it would be to get through because it depends on what he puts forward. Um, he probably uh, starts off with uh, with a high bar challenge if he were to do some of the things that we think he might do based on what he said. There's all, there are constitutional questions he would run into. There are um, certainly a lot of political questions he would run into. So Trump is a difficult one to answer. Mm-hmm. Sanders is easier to answer. And that's, uh, you know, he's he himself is explicit about this. Just electing Bernie Sanders to the White House does not get much done. You're, uh, he says that voters will have to, they'd have to change Congress and change Congress dramatically. They'd have to, there's no way that any of Bernie Sanders' agenda gets through uh, a Republican-controlled uh, Congress. There's no way it gets through even a Congress, even if Democrats were to retake the Senate, but not the House or vice versa, though the former is more likely. Uh, even if uh, Republicans maintain one chamber, Bernie Sanders' agenda does not go very far. And then the question is, how pragmatic is Sanders? One of the things that um, I actually have an article that will hopefully come out next week on this. One of the things that he uh, – I, I earlier essentially called him a walking ideology, and that's true. You know, he's, he's very ideologically committed, and his ideology is clear, and it's very – it's fairly far to the left. But he's also got a, a really interesting pragmatist streak where he's willing to take a half loaf. He's willing to um, – well, specifically here in Congress, he writes bills that do big things, uh, would make major changes to the health care system and pension system and this sort of stuff, and those bills go nowhere. But he's also perfectly willing to write small amendments and offer them on bills that do much, much, much smaller, you know, infinitesimal or small steps towards his ideology, not the big leaps. And he's willing to push those. And he's, you know, he's perfectly, I wouldn't say perfectly happy. He probably wants to get the big bills passed, but he's willing to accept a a small step along the way and consider that a victory. There are a lot of uh, folks on both sides of the aisle and Republicans in particular who are unwilling to do that if they can't get the entire, you know, the whole loaf, they don't want a half loaf or a quarter loaf. Democrats are generally better about taking the quarter loaf. And Bernie Sanders in particular is is a good legislator in terms of saying, hey, I'm going to take what I can get and I can always come back for the rest later and try again. Um, that's a smart uh, that's a smart legislator. And it probably is a, a sign of a guy who, you know, would be a formidable president if he went in dealing with Congress. Steve, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Fridays up here uh, in D.C., Capitol Hill in particular, it's it's usually like a half a day. Like Congress rarely works. Uh, it's, le- it's a lot less traffic on the roads. Uh, parking lots are more empty. Friday is like almost like a day off for a lot of people up here. So for you to sit here, um, yeah, I saw you working on something when I, when I came to you on a Friday. This is a big deal. This is... Um, my first interview of a show that we're trying to get started uh, with my friend Frank Turner. And uh, if we get the show going in another month or so, hopefully you'll come back and uh, do do a call-in show with us, be a guest on there. And um, I've enjoyed this, man. I just I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. It's really been my pleasure. It's great to do it. All right. Thank you. You just listened to Steve, Stephen Dining, uh, again, of the Washington Times. Um, again, you can also catch him on Fox News telling you about things going on on Capitol Hill and general things in politics. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something today. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. No problem. Have a good time. Let me know if you ever want to do it again. It's, uh, it is-